Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And in John 16, we have a beautiful promise that is given to us. And this promise and this verse really is the theme and the subject of what we'll be talking about today. John chapter 16. And we will look at verse 7. And the, if you were to give a title to our study this afternoon, it will be the glorification of Christ. So in John 16 and verse 7, we have a beautiful promise that Jesus gave us. And it goes like this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now this beautiful promise was given by Christ to comfort and encourage the disciples. But it was a strange way, in a sense, to comfort them by telling them that I am leaving you. Not only that, but he uses an interesting word. He actually says it is expedient. Isn't that right? What does the word expedient mean? Necessary, needful. It was something for their own good. It was something to their advantage that he is telling them that he has to go away. And the advantage in him going away is that he will send the comforter. And then he emphasizes that by saying it, saying the same thing in different words. He says, if I, if I don't go away, he will not come. But if I go, he will come. You know, it's saying the same thing in different words. Isn't that right? Now, why did Christ speak this way? What is it about the departure of Christ and the sending of the Comforter that helps us understand something very significant for us today? This is what we want to explore a little bit. But this verse is very significant, one of those places that are very obvious, that reveal to us that the Comforter, or that the Spirit that Jesus was referring to here, cannot be anyone other than Christ Himself. It cannot be a different individual. There is an intrinsic link here between the departure of Christ and the sending of the Comforter. The one cannot happen without the other. He says, if I don't go away, the Comforter will not come. There is something that is linked with the very person of Christ himself that has to do with the sending of the Comforter. And so when we have a false concept about the Spirit, as we shall see when we progress, we fail to understand that connection and thereby lose a very important lesson that we want to explore this afternoon. Only if Christ departed could the Spirit be sent. And the question that perhaps uh, should be asked is, why? Why is it that Christ had to go before the Comforter could come? And if He did not go, it would, it would not come. In other words, what is the link between the departure of Christ and the sending of the Spirit or the Comforter? And the answer is in the same Gospel of John, earlier in chapter 7. Let's have a look there at John chapter 7, and we will be looking there at verses 38 and 39. And we are looking for an answer to our question, why did that have to happen? Why did Christ have to go away before the Spirit or the Comforter could be sent? John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. Jesus here speaking, once again, and says, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, 
which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, here is a very, very plain answer. It tells us when Jesus spoke and said, whoever believes in him will have, he, will, he likens him as a fountain where rivers will flow out of his belly. And then it tells us he was referring here to the Spirit, which every believer would receive, but then it says something. That Spirit was not yet given or sent. And what's the reason? Because Christ was not yet glorified. In other words, when Jesus was telling his disciples, it is expedient for you that I go away, he essentially was also saying, I need to go away and be glorified before the Spirit can come. And if I don't go away, and if I am not glorified, then that Spirit will not come. A very important link between the glorification of Christ and the Spirit. Now, it's something important we need to understand here, because John speaks of the Spirit in a way that can be misunderstood or misinterpreted when he says, This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Why would John say the Holy Spirit was not yet given? Was the Spirit not in operation all through the Old Testament? Was the Holy Spirit working in the days of the Old Testament? The answer is a definite yes. Let's look at one example so we can just see something developing here. Let's go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, Old Testament, David writing in Psalm 51. And once we see this, then we will perhaps appreciate what John is trying to say. John, uh, sorry, Psalm 51 and verse 11. And here prayer, uh, David praying his prayer of repentance was concerned about losing something. Psalm 51 verse 11 says, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. What was David concerned about losing? The Holy Spirit. He did not want to lose the Holy Spirit. He says, Lord, I have sinned. Please forgive me. Please do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit was certainly there. Actually, we read about that in the very first chapter in the Bible, where it says the Spirit of God was moving on the face of the waters. You remember that. There are many instances where the Scriptures in the Old Testament clearly tell us that the Spirit was working, was operating. And yet, in spite of that, we find John in chapter 7 telling us that the Spirit was not yet given. Doesn't that put a question in your mind? Didn't John read Psalm 51? Didn't John know about Genesis 1? Didn't John know that in uh, the Scriptures it also says that God led Israel by His Spirit and that they grieved His Spirit? What was John meaning when he said the Spirit was not yet given? Now, of course, John was familiar with all these events. He was familiar with all these instances. He was familiar with the fact that the Holy Spirit was working and operating in the Old Testament. But John also knew and understood that when Christ would go away and be glorified, there was going to be ascending of, a, of the Spirit in such a marked manner that all the Old Testament occurrences would fade into insignificance in comparison. So much so that he says it would be like the Spirit was never given when this one comes. Do you see that? He says the Holy Spirit was not yet given because that Christ was not yet glorified. Well, what is this greater and richer outpouring of the Spirit that was linked with the going away of Christ and Him 
being glorified. That's what we want to explore. That's what we want to understand. And this is exactly what Christ also referred to when he told his disciples, it is necessary. It is expedient. It is for your own good that I go away so that I can send you this comforter. What does this spirit mean? We already uh, looked at that previously. Let's look at one verse that will help us understand and appreciate these words. John chapter 6. We'll go back to the Gospel of John chapter 6 and we'll see what we can understand. When the Bible tells us spirit, that's a key definition that will help us appreciate the meaning of the words of Christ, the meaning of the words of John, and then we can understand what this greater and richer outpouring is all about. John chapter 6, and we will read verse 63. John chapter 6 and verse 63. And John here, quoting our Lord and Savior, verse 63, Jesus says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Very plainly, Christ here tells us, gives us a definition, a working definition of what the spirit really is. He says that the words he speaks, they are spirit, and the words he speaks, they are Life. So what is then the relationship between spirit and life? It is the same thing, isn't that right? If the words are spirit and the words are life, therefore spirit and life are interchangeable. It's the same thing. So when Jesus was saying he's going to go away and send the spirit, in other words, he's talking about the sending of life. Particularly which kind of life? It had to be his very own Life, because it says, I need to be glorified, and only then can I give to you this spirit, or can I give to you this life. And the pouring out of the life of Christ, when that would take place, would be so much greater and richer than it had ever occurred before, that John says, you know what? The spirit was not yet given. That life was not yet given because... Christ was not yet glorified. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us very plainly that Christ himself is that very life. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, just quickly. We'll just have a look at some verses here as we build this picture, this beautiful picture. 1 Corinthians 15. As we seek to understand the glorious time in which we are living right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're just look, looking here what Christ is as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 tells us, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Who's the last Adam? Christ. It says he's made a quickening spirit. What's the word quickening mean? Life-giving. The Bible talks about judging the quick and the dead. The quick are the living, the dead are the dead. So the quickening spirit is a spirit that gives life. And who is the spirit that gives life, according to this verse? The last Adam, which is Christ. You see, Christ was telling his disciples, I need to go away and I need to be glorified in order for me to give to you my very own spirit or my very own life. And when that is poured out upon you, it will be so much greater and richer and more glorious than has ever occurred before that John says the Holy Spirit, that life was not yet given. 
because Christ was not yet glorified. Elsewhere in the scripture, it also tells us that the Spirit is life. And that life is none other than Christ himself. So it's very, very plain in the Bible. This life is Christ. But before this life could come, Christ had to be glorified. This was very high on the priority list in Christ's mind as his mission came to a close. You see, this, this, is one, this is the most precious gift that he could give to us upon his de departure. Let's go to John 17 and see in the prayer that he prayed to his father before leaving, what was on his mind, what was really occupying his attention that he especially asked his father for. And we find that it's this very particular gift, this very particular thing. John chapter 17, and we will look at verse 5. John chapter 17 and verse 5. Notice carefully what he says here. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. What's Christ asking for? Glory, isn't that right? He's asking to be glorified. He's asking his Father for glory. Now, you know, I always used to read this verse and think of it. You know, Christ is saying, Lord, I've finished the mission now. I need to be restored to the same status that I had before because he had humbled himself. But this is not really the intent or motivation of Christ at all. His asking for the glory is not for himself, really. He's asking for the glory because that's when he can give his life to his Disciples, if you don't believe that, just drop down a little bit to verse 22 and notice the import of why he's asking for glory. Verse 22. Verse 22 says, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have what? Given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. You know, Christ anticipates the answer of the Father, and he speaks in a way as the Father has already answered his prayer. At the beginning of the prayer, he says, Father, give me the glory. And before he finished the prayer, he says, Father, the glory that you've given me, I've already given to them. That's the faith that Jesus had, isn't that right? He asked and he believed and he acted upon the belief by saying, he didn't say the Father, you know, when you give me that, I will do this. He says, Father, that glory is as good as done in giving that to me. Because he knows whatever he asks his Father, his Father gives him. And he says, that glory, that is mine, I have given them. So in other words, when Christ was asking for glory, he was asking not for he himself to be reinstated. He was asking on the behalf of the disciples. He was asking for them so that they might receive his life. And he knows the only way for them to receive his life is if he is glorified. So he says, Father, now mission accomplished. I have done and I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Now glorify me, not for me, but so that I can impart to them that glory. So here we see also that the giving of the glory to Christ, the glorification of Christ, also means the giving of that glory to his disciples. That's linked with the sending of the Spirit or the Comforter. Okay, you with me so far? I haven't lost anyone? Okay, so we're doing a little bit of a Bible study, but we're just seeing the picture that develops in the closing scenes of Christ's ministry and the importance of that for us today. And the importance of that to the gospel of the kingdom, as Brother Harold was just sharing before. That's, there's a very, very significant link in that. And so the glory that Christ was going to give his disciples is none other than the 
very life that he had lived on earth. Now we need to understand the significance of that because you see when Christ lived on earth, and we want to understand why John says the spirit or this life was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The life that Jesus lived on earth was the kind of life that had never ever been lived on earth before. Isn't that right? It was a life in which there was total and consistent, complete victory over sin. Isn't that right? Had that ever happened before on earth? Never. It was complete victory over sin every time, time after time. Isn't that right? It was a brand new person, a brand new life. It was a union of the divine and the human, and that union of the divine and the human lived and faced every single temptation that the mind of Lucifer could invent and come up with, and every single time it overcame. Now that's very, very significant for us because we have a battle with sin. We have a battle where we need to overcome sin, and we need to understand exactly what Christ has given to us to aid us in this battle. Many times we waste a lot of effort and energy trying to overcome sin because we perhaps do not fully recognize the gift that Christ intended for us to have, his very own life. And so you could essentially say, as we were saying, this was a brand new person. And this is why it actually, this is why the Spirit many times is referred to as a person because it is the very person of Christ. The union of the divine and the human that lived this consistent, victorious life every single time. This is why we find that it was at the end of the life of Christ, in his very last public prayer that we have recorded here, that he says to his father, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What was the work that was given to him? The work of salvation. And the work of salvation involved and included the fact that he would overcome sin and condemn sin in the flesh, thereby saving all those who are under the dominion of sin if they choose to accept that salvation and apply it personally in their lives. And so he says, Father, I've done my part of the deal. I have come to the end of my life. And you know, it was not long before that when Jesus said about the devil, he said, the prince of this world cometh, and what? He has how much? Nothing in me. And so he comes now to the end and he says, Father, I finished the work. Here is now my life. This is the deal that was done before the foundations of the earth for the, between the Father and the Son. This is the everlasting covenant. And now Christ says, says I finished that work. Glorify me that I may give to them this glory, that I may give to them this spirit, or that I may give to them this life. And the reason why John talks about this life being so much richer and so much greater than has ever been before is because the life of Christ comes to us enriched with all the experiences of his victory over sin. And he says everything else fades in comparison with that. It's as if the Spirit was not yet given. Because, you see, this life was not lived before Christ came to earth to live this life. Now that he had lived his life, now he had accomplished that and showed very clearly to the whole universe that the devil can be overcome in every single temptation. He offers up this life. And on the cross we are told that he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit or my life, and he offers that up to the Father. He says, Father, if this is acceptable to you, glorify me 
Because when you glorify me, now I can impart that victorious life to every believing soul. And that's why Christ said, it is actually expedient for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away, I cannot give you this comforter or this life. And this is really what the comforter is. You know, when you look up the meaning of the word comforter, it means what? Helper, isn't that right? Someone to assist you. Well, why do we need a helper? Why do we need help? What do we need assistance with? It's because we have this battle with sin and self and Satan. Isn't that right? That's the whole issue. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you a helper, but this helper cannot come unless I'm glorified. In other words, he's talking about his very own life. It's his life and his life alone that can give us any help to overcome sin. Because his life is the only one that has ever consistently overcome sin. It cannot be anyone else. It cannot be anything else. And if it is anything else, that's a deception of the devil. It's actually disparaging the gift that Jesus intended for us to have. That's why it's important and significant to understand what he was talking about. And so we see Christ, he lived his life, as we said, a brand new life that had never been lived before. And the time had come when Christ would go to his father. Let's go to John chapter 20. It's interesting that John talks a lot about this particular topic. Most of our verses are in the Gospel of John. John chapter 20. <clears throat> and as Jesus said, you know, the time had come now when the Father himself, the highest authority in the universe, was to declare, was the mission of Christ indeed successful or not? Did Christ did indeed finish the work or not? And the Father was going to give his stamp of approval or not? In order for Christ then to give this life to us. You remember uh, resurrection morning? This is the timing of this verse here we're about to read. And uh, verse 20, uh, sorry, verse 17 of chapter 20. Uh, Mary was looking for Christ. She came to the tomb. She didn't find him, and she begins to cry. Remember the story, verse 17. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. You can just picture the scene. There is Mary, troubled. She doesn't know where her Lord is. She probably does not even conceive of the fact that he has risen. And she's looking for him and she turns around and she sees someone through her tears dimly. She thinks that's the gardener and she begins to ask him. And then Jesus speaks to her and she recognizes his voice. Isn't that right? And as soon as she recognizes his, vo his voice, she instinctively does something. What does she do? She goes to, to touch him and grab a hold of him. You remember, you know, that's, that's the, uh, Mary when she was uh, washing the feet of the Lord with, with the perfume and wiping with her, with her hair. So she goes and then Christ tells her these interesting words. And I've always wondered about these words and, and I understood them a little better when I, when I started seeing that particular picture. When he said to her, touch me not. You know, usually with the explanation about touch me not, we usually think that Jesus was telling Mary, don't do this. Don't touch me, as if there was something special about it. And you know, the explanation I heard many times was, well, Jesus was now glorified. Uh, so he was resurrected. He had a glorified body. And so it wasn't uh, okay for Mary to touch him because he hasn't gone yet to heaven. I don't know if you heard that explanation or not, but that's the explanation I heard. 
but the, the, the verse doesn't mean that at all, actually. What Jesus was telling Mary when he said, touch me not, if you look up the meaning or if you look up other translations, it actually says, detain me not, or do not cling to me. There was nothing wrong at all with touching Christ. As a matter of fact, you know, Thomas was told, come and touch and put your finger here and here. Isn't that right? There was no problem in touching Christ. It's not like he was going to get defiled or anything like that. But he was telling Mary, Mary, now that you've seen me, now that you're comforted that I'm alive, don't hold on to me. I need to get going. We have something. We have a schedule we need to keep. So do not cling to me. Do not touch me and detain me by holding on to me. You know, it's a beautiful thing that Christ delayed his ascension in order to comfort the sorrowing heart of Mary. You realize that? You know, Christ was resurrected. You can just picture all of heaven gloriously waiting for the victorious commander and hero to return. He's just defeated the devil. And his, his resurrection is, is the seal of his victory. And Christ hangs around a little bit there in the garden in the morning because there is one sorrowing Mary looking for him. She can't find him. It's a beautiful object lesson for us. Jesus will tarry to comfort one person. Now, you might be that Mary in your experience. You're going through a hard time, going through a, a severe disappointment as Mary had gone through a disappointment. And you know, our eyes are blinded by tears. And we do not discern that Jesus is right there standing to comfort us. And then he speaks to us and we recognize his voice. That's what Christ did to Mary. It's a beautiful lesson that Christ has a tender regard for one soul. You know, so Christ was not like, sorry, look, we need to keep a schedule here. Mary's crying, but you know, I just rose and all of heaven is waiting. I better get going. No, he actually delays that. And as soon as she's comforted, as soon as she gets the message, he essentially says, okay, Mary, now I need to get back on track. We have a schedule. Please let me go so that I can go to my father and your father. What's on his mind? On his mind is the glorification so that he can give to his disciples the precious gift of his victorious life. That's the whole motivation. He is longing for that. And he's saying, go and tell my disciples that I'm going to my father. He was trying to remind them of the promise that he said, when I go away, I will send him. But if I don't go away, he will not come. So he's saying, go and tell my disciples, I am on my way. In other words, the comforter is coming soon. That was his promise. So here is a beautiful picture we have of Christ comforting Mary and repeating really that promise indirectly and his care for one person. Uh, let's go down to verse, I lost my spot here. Let's go down, same chapter. Now what day of the week was that? Anyone remember? What, what, what day of the week is this event that we're reading about here with Mary? First day of the week, very early in the morning. Isn't that right? Now let's go down to verse... Let's see here. Which verse are we looking for? Let's go down verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. So now what time of the day are we? In the evening of the same day. Now what had Christ said to Mary in the morning? Where did he say he was going? He was going to his father. He had made that promise. Now Christ is one who keeps his word. 
And in the interim, between the morning and the evening, Christ had indeed gone to his father and returned to his disciples to find them assembled there in the evening in this, in this room. And then he tells them, peace be unto you. Verse 20, and when he had said, when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And then verse 22 is a key verse here. We want to just think about it a little bit. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Christ had kept his word. He had gone to his Father. He had presented before him the accomplishment of his life on earth and he came straight down and he goes to his disciples and he visits with them and he tells them as the father sent me now i am sending you and then he breathes on them and says receive the holy spirit this is exactly what christ had promised them would take place so you can picture once again here's christ goes to heaven and all the great celebration event, he doesn't stay in heaven. As soon as he gets the approval from the Father, he comes straight down to his disciples, his, his poor disciples. You know, all of heaven, the whole universe was rejoicing at that time because of the victory of Christ. And it was the disciples on earth that were all sorrowing and crying and struggling to hold on to their faith and just make some sense of the tragedy that just happened. All their hopes were shattered and they were just, you know, groping in the dark. And Christ comes straight back to them and tries to encourage them and says, look, it's me. And that's the beautiful picture when it says that when the disciples saw the Lord, they were, they were glad. You know what that means? That before that they were in sorrow and probably bemoaning the fact that Christ died and saying, look, all our hopes are shattered. And you see the same sentiment in, in, the, in the walk uh, to Emmaus with the two disciples who were walking and they tell Jesus, you know, we trusted that it would be he who would restore the kingdom to Israel, but it wasn't like we thought. Their hopes were dashed, they were disappointed. So they were in a great disappointment and the Lord comes to comfort them and encourage them. But the interesting thing here is Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. But this was not what Christ was intending when he gave them the promise, behold, I send to you uh, the promise of my father or the comforter. This was not the full realization of the promise. This was not the full outpouring of the spirit just yet. What actually was taking place here was more like a, a down payment or a deposit or a preview of what was to follow. So eager was Christ to pour out his life, but something still had to happen. He had to be glorified. And that glorification has not yet taken place, as we shall see in a minute. But then he breathes down on them, his, his disciples says, look here, receive the Holy Spirit. It was something of a preview of what was to happen. It was what was to come soon, because he wanted so longingly and earnestly to give that to them. Now, why am I saying this was not yet the full outpouring? Because Christ himself said that. Luke 24 is one place where we will see what Christ exactly said and meant. Luke 24, Luke chapter 24, this was not the complete outpouring and the giving of that promise that Jesus gave. Luke 24 verse 49, 
Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. So in other words, he was telling them that promise of the Father has not yet been given. They had to tarry in Jerusalem. What was the promise of the Father that he had told them? that he's speaking about here. It's the promise that he had told them about before, isn't that right? That I will send to you the comforter. Now, does anyone remember what is the timing of verse 49 here? Maybe if we read verse 50 to help us, help give us the timing, because it's good to, to see things in their chronological order. It's very important. So earlier we were just talking about Christ coming to his disciples in the upper room. And what day was that? Sunday in the evening, you remember? The same day that he was resurrected. Now we have a, a time period where he's telling them, wait, and I want to determine what that time period is. And verse 50 may help us a little. And it says, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. What day is this? The day of his ascension. Now, the day of his, his ascension happened how long after his resurrection? 40 days. Isn't that right? So Christ comes back on Sunday evening. He breathes on them. He gives them like a preview or, or, a, or a down payment of what was to come. He spends with them 40 days. And as we read earlier, in these 40 days, he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And then on the 40th day, he tells them, listen. Behold, I will send to you the promise of my Father, but you need to wait in Jerusalem until you receive that promise. In other words, Jesus was saying, I am going, and I'm going to be glorified, and as soon as that happens, you will receive the promise of my Father that he had given them. So the parallel for this is in Acts 1. Let's go to Acts chapter 1 see the parallel verse. The book of Acts chapter 1. And see how this all links together. And we will see how Christ came into his kingdom with power. And that was dependent on him being glorified as he himself has said. Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. Verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but he shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Interesting. He's speaking with his disciples. He is parting, and it wasn't, it wasn't long after that. They have this short conversation, and then it tells us a little later as he was speaking with them, he was parted from them and was... Uh, ascended to heaven. And he tells them that they needed to wait in Jerusalem for how long? For a few days. He doesn't tell them how long, but he says in a few days. That means in a very short period. He says within a few days, you will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit that I was telling you about. In other words, he says, in a few days, I will pour out my spirit. I will pour out my life in this richer and greater measure. In other words, he was saying, in a few days, I'm going to be glorified. Isn't that right? 
You see, Christ knew that there was something that was going to happen on schedule, on time, in heaven. And he was telling his disciples about that particular event. Now, of course, you remember in the Jewish economy, the, uh, God had given to the Jews feasts to keep, and these feasts were types of certain important events that would happen in the plan of salvation. We know that the death of Christ was typified by the feast of the Passover, isn't that right? And the resurrection of Christ was typified by the wave sheaf or the first fruits, uh, the omer that would be waved three days from Passover, which indicated that Christ would die and in three days would rise again. And that's why he told his disciples. And on the way to Emmaus, Christ very well would have opened the Moses and the prophets and showed how he had to suffer and die on the third day rise again. That's what he would have discussed with them, these prophecies that relate to that. But not only were... Uh, these were not the only feasts. There was another important feast that came after Pentecost, and that's the Feast of? What's the next feast after Pentecost and the Unleavened Bread? Anyone remember? Yes, that's right. That's, that's part of Unleavened Bread. But what's the next one after that? The Feast of Pentecost. Sorry? Oh, I'm sorry. I meant Passover. Thank you. I'm saying the wrong words here, confusing you, sorry. Yes, the, the feast that comes after Passover and unleavened bread, they are linked in one, is Pentecost. And of course, the feast of Pentecost comes 50 days after the wave sheaf. Isn't that right? 50 days, for, uh, 50 days from the 16th. 50 days after the ascension, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. That happened on one day. I don't want to lose you here with all these numbers. I maybe should have drawn it on the board. But you with me so far? We're just looking at the, at the prophetic types that were given in the Jewish economy because they actually help us understand why Jesus said, not many days hence. You see, Jesus knew that in 10 days, there was an important event that would take place in heaven. And that important event that would take place in heaven was typified in the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost meaning five or 50, 50 days from the wave sheaf. And so that's why he told them on the 40th day that not many days hence, they will receive his life. Not many days hence, he will be glorified in heaven. And that would actually be on time with the Feast of Pentecost, as we shall see. Now, this acceptance of the Father and the glorification of Christ is so important. It's so significant, as we are seeing here. It, everything is hinging on that. The promise and the reception of the promise is hinged on the fact that Christ will be glorified. Now, where in the scripture do we find this glorious event that took place in heaven where Christ is officially and publicly glorified as he requested in his prayer? We actually find that in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Now, this is an interesting verse. This verse is not generally seen in this light or understood in this light, which is surprising. But let's look at it together and see what we can learn. When was Christ glorified and where is this very significant and important re event recorded? Hebrews chapter 1 verses 8 and 9. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Who is speaking? The Father is speaking to his Son. 
And it's interesting here that the Father refers to his Son as, as God. He is fully divine. But the Father here tells him that his scepter is forever. And then verse 9, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And it's strange to me that the timing of this verse is missed many times. This verse is actually talking about the time when Christ was glorified by the Father in heaven, which occurred 10 days after his ascension. And he knew this would happen. See, Christ understood that there were plans and, and things happening in play, taking place in heaven, preparations for a very important ceremony a very important event, his glorification. This glorification of him as the high priest of his people is really his anointing as that, in that very role, as the high priest of his people. It's really his anointing and his inauguration into the office of high priest for his people. That's signified by the words, God has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy Fellows, that was really the glorification of Christ. Because what does glorification mean? Glorification means exaltation and magnification. Christ now officially and publicly is receiving this exaltation. He is being inaugurated or ordained into the office of high priest of his people. And Jesus said, when that takes place, immediately I will send you the spirit or the comforter. And unless that takes place, I cannot send to you that comforter, that spirit. This was the official public acceptance and validation from the Father of the success of the mission of Christ, anointing him with the oil of gladness above his fellows. This language here comes from the Old Testament, really, because it was in the Old Testament that the high priest, before he could function in the capacity as high priest, he had to be ordained or inaugurated or anointed with oil. Isn't that right? Remember, God told Moses, and you shall anoint Aaron with oil before he can minister as a high priest. That was a type of what would happen to the great high priest. Now, something here I want to pinpoint, we don't want to miss, is the reason why Christ is anointed as a high priest. What's the reason that is given to us in verse 9? What is the reason that he is anointed or receives this anointing. It says, because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Well, when did Christ demonstrate a love for righteousness and a hatred for iniquity? It was when he lived here on earth and battled against iniquity every single day. And every single day he came off victorious, loving righteousness and hating iniquity. And so this is really based on the fact that Christ was successful in his mission in battling with sin and Satan. And God says, because you are successful in your mission, because you have finished the work successfully, and because you have loved righteousness and hated iniquity, now you have qualified for the position of being the high priest of, his, of your people. We are now officially glorifying you and anointing you with the oil of gladness above your... Fellows, that's really what was taking place in heaven. It was a service, a ceremony, a glorious ceremony. And we get an insight into that in this particular verse here. 
And as we said, this was typified in the Old Testament anointing of the priests. Now, when that was taking place in heaven, as Jesus promised, as soon as he is glorified, he said, the glory which thou hast given me, I have given them. We find the counterpart of what was taking place on earth in Acts chapter 2. And I think we're all familiar with that story. But I want us to read very carefully some of the words recorded in Acts chapter 2 when Peter, who understood what was taking place in heaven, was preaching. Acts chapter 2, of course, this is the day of Pentecost, as we all know. And this is a significant proof here that we see when Christ, as Christ promised, the glory you have given me, I have given them. As soon as we find the disciples receiving that glory, that's the time when you know Christ has been glorified. There's a connection there. And Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 32 and 33, shows us that he understood what was taking place. Verse 32, This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. Peter knew what was happening in heaven, isn't that right? He knew that Christ was exalted by the Father, or in other words, he was glorified. He says, the evidence for what we're telling you is right here before your eyes. This Jesus has shed forth what you are seeing and hearing. He has poured out his spirit, or he has poured out his life. And there is a simultaneous link, an event that's taking place in heaven and on earth. Heaven is linked with earth, and the link is Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit is. It's the very life of Christ. And this is why John says this life is so much richer and greater. This spirit was not yet given. It's because that life comes to us with every single victory that Christ has already earned. It doesn't come to us deprived of that. That's why it's so much richer and more glorious. Now that's something that is of encouragement to us. Because many times when we have battle with temptation and with trial, we try and go out and earn our victory. And we talk about victory over sin, and we go away from the meeting, I have to have victory over sin. Oh boy, here comes that temptation again. Mm. And we try and overcome and not realize many times that our efforts are futile. We are trying to redo something that has been already accomplished. What we need to remember is Christ has already earned the victory over that particular temptation you're dealing with. And his victory is already yours if you have his life. That's what his life is enriched with. That's why he said, I need to be glorified. I'm already glorified now, as we see in Acts 2. This life is yours to help you and to aid you and to comfort you in your battle with sin and self and Satan, as we said. And so it puts a very different perspective on the temptation. The temptation comes and we have the mentality of, oh, I hope I can overcome it this time. Or the temptation comes and you have the life of Christ and you say, that temptation is already overcome. All I have to do is by faith allow the victory of Christ to manifest in me. By allowing the life of Christ to manifest in me. It puts a very different perspective when you know that the temptation is already defeated before it comes knocking on your door. It's encouraging, isn't it? 
That's what it was designed to do. That's what Christ said, this comforter will help you and comfort you and strengthen you in your trials and in your battles. And this is really the import of this truth that we believe and profess. The import is that we have victory practically because we have the life of Christ. This is why the devil is keen on distorting this fact by creating this theory that the comforter is someone different to Christ. What he has done is really robbing from us the victory that we have in the life of Christ. And so we go out and try and earn a victory because after all, if the spirit is somebody other than Christ, then it is not someone who was tempted in all points as we are and overcome. It was only Christ who came as a human being to be tempted. So it's a sad theology that teaches that Christ came as a man and overcame every temptation and then leaves us and sends us someone else who has never been tempted, like us. That's a very sad theology. It's a very self-defeating theology. Let's go to uh, John, actually let's go to Psalm 133. Psalm 133, and just look at another beautiful type here that strengthens this link between earth, uh, heaven and earth. Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is a very short psalm. It's also a very significant psalm because it has a beautiful picture of what was taking place right then. So remember on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Christ ascended, he fulfilled this promise that he had said in his prayer, the glory which thou hast given me, I have given them. We see that happened on Pentecost and it has not been withdrawn. In Psalm 133, We'll read the first two verses. Let me just find it here. I'm a little behind. Psalm 133. Notice what it says, verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now that's a beautiful verse we all quote many times. I want you to think of something. This chapter, this whole chapter here is really a type. It's a picture of what Christ was talking about. Because you remember, what was the condition of the disciples when they were in the upper room for those 10 days? How does the Bible uh, portray their condition? They were all of one accord. There was unity there, isn't that right? And that unity is beautiful. This is what really uh, the psalmist here says, it's beautiful for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then he likens this unity to something very significant. He makes a link here, and this is what we want to see. Verse two, it is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. And you might be thinking, what is the link? Why is the sounds in unity? What does that have to do with the anointing of Aaron with this ointment? And the link is really only understood when we look at Jesus. This was a picture of what would take place. You see, the anointing of Aaron, as we said, was a type of what would happen to our great high priest, Christ Jesus. And just as Aaron was anointed with the oil, and the beautiful thing about the picture here that it gives us is that when Aaron was anointed with oil, it wasn't a meager amount of oil. Isn't that right? It wasn't a few drops. It was a lot of oil. How do we know that? It ran down, and if you've done anointing for anyone, you'll find that if you lose a little bit, it kind of just stops midway. But if you use a lot of oil, so much that it would run down all the way down their clothes to the bottom, you've used a lot of oil, isn't that right? 
that's a picture of how much God wants to pour out His Spirit on His people. Not in a few drops here and there. He wants to give us more than we expect or think or imagine according to His riches and glory. So the anointing of Christ, what Christ received in heaven was plenty for everyone. And just as the oil ran down Aaron's beard and to his garments, we find that actually happened in that as soon as Christ was anointed in heaven, that oil or that, that oil represents the spirit, that spirit or that life ran down to the skirts of his garments. And where were the skirts of his garments? Christ's garment. It was on earth. You see, Christ is the head of his body, his people. His people were on earth, and as soon as the head was anointed with the oil, that oil or that life ran down, all the way down to earth, where the rest of his body was. That's his disciples. And there was a link now between the head and the body. Whatever the head receives, the body receives. The head is glorified, the body is also partaking of that glory. So that's a beautiful picture. Now notice how it goes on. Verse 3, and it likens this anointing. It says, it ran down the skirts of his garment. Verse 3, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So here's the link. Brethren, together in unity, the anointing, life forevermore. That's a typological sign. That, a sign. That's a type of what would take place, what actually takes place right now, if we truly believe. So there are many things in the Bible that are beautiful pictures like that. Pictures that we can grasp a hold of by faith. John chapter 1. Now we'll just see some of the implications of these beautiful truths for us today. John chapter 1, we'll go back to the Gospel of John. We're almost there. John chapter 1 and verse 12. The significance of these things for us now. John chapter 1 and verse 12. It says here, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Receiving Christ is how we can become sons of? Sons of God, by believing on his name. You see, the Father now could legitimately extend the life of his Son to every believer. Because of what Christ has accomplished, and because of the fact that he is now glorified. This is actually what it tells us in Galatians 4, 6, doesn't it? Let's compare these two verses together. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. Epistle to the Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. This is how we actually are adopted into the family of God or into the kingdom of God. Galatians 4 and verse 6. It says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God. In other words, that's done by him giving the spirit of his son. Of course, the spirit of his son cannot be anyone but his son. That's how we are adopted. If we are adopted through anyone else, our adoption is illegitimate. You realize that? 
If we do not receive the spirit of the Son, we do not have the spirit of adoption. If it's any other spirit, we have a problem. And the only one who is happy for that problem to occur is the devil. That's why he has created bizarre theology to destroy the practical reality of what we're talking about here today. As many as received him, to them gave he power. That's what the disciples received. They received power to speak the word with power, power of witnessing, power of overcoming. All these things are involved and included in the very life of Jesus Christ. That's why I said it's expedient for you that I go away. If it doesn't go away, that life will not come. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We just have a couple more verses as we see the significance of that for us. A little clearer, hopefully. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You know, it's only when we understand this properly can we appreciate the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. A short verse, but a very significant one. It says, But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. You ever wondered about that verse? He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. You know, that's really puzzling. Because you say, what does that mean? And it's impossible to understand if you think that the Spirit is someone other than the Lord. What does it mean when it says, He that is joined is one Spirit? You see, when we believe in Christ, as the Scripture says, the, the previous verse that we just read, we are given the very Spirit of His Son. And when we're given the Spirit of His Son, that creates a fusion or a joining together so that His Spirit, His very own life becomes our own life. And we are joined together and the two actually become one, that's only possible through Christ. That's why it's significant to understand that when we're joined to the Lord, we become one spirit or one life with Him. And everything that is included in that life, now we are linked in. We are joined in. You see, there's a beautiful book about the life of Christ called The Desire of Ages. In that beautiful book about, Desire of Christ, uh, about the life of Christ, there's a beautiful little sentence that's made up of four words that uh, I find very, very significant. It has to do with what we're talking about here. Four words, uh, and the four words are these. His victory is ours. You know the quote, very good. That's very easy to find, actually. It's on page one, two, three. Isn't that easy? Page one, two, three. His victory is ours. Why? Because his life is ours, if we believe. And when his life is ours, everything that is included in that life becomes ours. And especially do we need the victory. You see, brothers and sisters, this is what righteousness by faith is all about. It's being righteous by faith in him and receiving his righteousness. His righteousness is really his life. Righteousness by faith is not going out there and meeting sin and earning and obtaining our own victory over sin. That's not good enough. It's going out there and meeting sin and letting the victory that Christ has obtained manifest in us. That's righteousness by faith. That's why this truth is under so much attack today and will continue to be under attack till the last day because the devil does not want us to understand. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
Second Corinthians chapter three. Now this is the practical applications when we understand the truth about God. It's not just a theory. I believe this way, you believe that way. It actually makes a practical difference in our everyday walk and in our battle with sin. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 17. Tells us very, very plainly so that we do not need to be confused. Paul says, now the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom from bondage, from sin and from the dominion of the evil one. The Lord only can give us that. That's what the Bible says. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. No one else can give freedom and liberty like that. Now notice the next verse. Beautiful verse as we bring this to a close. Verse 18, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That happens because Christ gives to us the glory that He is glorified with. That's the Spirit. And as we are given that life, we're actually changed and transformed like Him into His very own image from glory to glory. Only Jesus can give us liberty and freedom like that. Is Christ really your comforter or is it someone else? That's the question you need to ask. You know, it's one thing to have these theological arguments, but at the end of the day, who is your comforter? Is it Christ or is it someone else? Our last text is in Colossians chapter 3. Last text, Colossians chapter 3. And I like this text because it brings together everything that we have talked about so far. Colossians chapter 3. This is like a short summary of everything we said in this little study that we looked at together. And in Colossians 3, we want to look at verse 4. It says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in, in glory. When Christ, who is our life, praise the Lord. When will he appear? What's he talking about here? At the second coming. Now, it's interesting that Paul calls Christ our life. For the believer, that's what Christ is. He's our life. And that's not... Uh, some idiom that Christians use when it actually means someone else is our life, that is reality. And brothers and sisters, this is the only preparation that we can have for the second coming. If we want to appear with Him in glory, He must be our life now. Our preparation for the second coming does not involve a correct understanding of all the prophecies and all the ideas and doctrines that relate to that particular event or any other event. The only preparation for the second coming is right here. Is Christ your life or not? If He is your life, then you will appear with Him in, in glory. If He is not your life, then it doesn't matter how much theology you understand, how many books you might have written on theology, you will not appear with Him in glory. You see, the criteria for partaking fully of His glory at that time is that He is our life now, that we are partake of His glory internally, and when He appears, we will partake of His glory fully. Because He said, the glory that Thou hast given me, I have given them. That will be fully and completely realized when Christ comes to 
redeem his church. So I want to leave you with that thought. I want to challenge you with the thought that we have right now, by faith, access to this life of Christ. It's not something hidden. It's not something far away from us. It's as far as our faith will reach this life of Christ. So I want to invite you, if you have not made Christ your life, to make him your life right now. That's how we can appear with him in glory. And if you have made Christ your life, and you have perhaps lost a little bit of faith, and you're a bit like Mary, groping in the dark, kind of lost him here or there along the way, and, and he is where you think he might be, but he's not really there. I want to encourage you that Christ does not give up on you. Don't give up on him. Christ stands there and he's still our Lord and Savior. He still can be your life. So I just want to leave you with that thought and encourage you to indeed make him your life. That's the criteria for belonging to his kingdom. Isn't that right? That's what we were talking about earlier. That's how, he, that's how he can be the king and ruler of his kingdom. Are we partaking of his life? If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through his son, Jesus.